This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. Welcome to Sustainable Lands Regeneration on Radio, the first show for 2021. Each week we talk with somebody who is making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective, through their sustainable lens. Tonight I'm here again with Henry Edenman. Who's going to say hello, Henry? Hello. And we're going to use Henry's marvellous machine to do another deep dive into the Sustainable Lens archive rather than a single person. We're going to have a compilation using the magic of the search engine, which will find interesting words from the things that each person is talking about and find us somebody else who can continue that conversation. Henry refers to it as the rabbit hole machine. I don't think he calls it a rabbit hole machine. The rabbit hole function. Yeah, going down the rabbit hole. Going down the rabbit hole. So if for the start of the year, let's start with Renew. We had a bit of a chat about this. We're not sure whether it's going to get us renew, as in renewing visions of the future, or renew as in renewable energy. What do you think, Henry? I think we'll probably get renewable energy, but let's find out. For our presentation, there was a speaker who showed some pictures of underwater turbines, and I think a lot of people in the room had probably never seen pictures of underwater turbines before, and essentially they look an awful lot like... Um, uh, wind generators so they're just these big open blades sometimes they're open blades that are going in opposite direction to each other as the speaker rightly described them as scissors um, and they're you know they're of large scale they move at a, a quite a fast speed certainly you know he described the ends of these um, uh, propeller arms moving at about uh, 45, the equivalent of 45 k's per hour. So um, and the question that we have is it's very interesting. We've mapped the uh, the growing use of renewables in um, across the UK and also we've mapped growing interest by industry in renewables right across the world and there certainly is a burgeoning in interest in this industry and in many ways quite rightly so you know we've also done a lot of work on climate change and the potential impacts of climate change to marine species particularly marine marine mammals and uh, we have a lot of concerns in relation to that but we also are aware that there is a dilemma here we need to we need to be very careful about the kinds of new technologies that we're putting into the oceans and to be sure that at the very least we can uh, start to record any impacts that they're having and you know those impacts can range from the noise associated with the developments, the noise associated with the devices whilst they're um, in operation, 
um, which can lead to potentially, well, this is the thing, we don't know what it could lead to. You know, we don't know whether it will lead to displacement or actual injury. Um, and then there's the, the sort of the longer scale looking at what happens to these devices um, whether when they get decommissioned. You know, they might and might essentially provide quite a dangerous environment um, for marine mammals. So it's got to be what we're calling for really is that there has to be from a, a cradle to grave approach to this technology there has to be more collaboration across the globe with uh, people who are using this technology and where they're using it and we need to look better we need to know a little bit more about some of those critical habitat areas where they relate to um, areas of interest for renewables industry and not to be putting turbines in critical habitat for critically endangered species which is which is one thing we're, we're a little bit concerned about in New Zealand actually because there's um, the conservation minister has issued a permit for 200 um, uh, underwater turbines which are about 25 meters in height and will sit about at low tide roughly five meters below the sea surface so that there's you know there's enough room for shipping well certainly for boats to go in and, in and out um, in the Kuiper Harbour, in a place which has had an awful lot of sightings of New Zealand's critically endangered marine um, mammal, which is the uh, Maui's dolphin. So I think that's that doesn't seem like a, a particularly logical decision to have made from a conservation perspective, to be citing something, a, a technology of this kind um, for which the impacts are unknown. Uh, within the habitat of a critically endangered species. So- that was Philippa Brakes, who was here for the world, I think it was, whale conservation uh, conference. She was talking about marine mammals there. So let's do a search on marine mammals and see who we get. It's Tara Whitty. I'm characterising across those three levels, um, it would really give me a a very, what I'll call, multidimensional sense of what's going on in that particular conservation situation. Well, so let's just move back a little bit. So what, where did you go to school? Where were you, where were you born and where raised? Okay, uh, I was born in Japan, but I uh, grew up in San Diego. Okay, and uh, so what got you into, so you actually lived in an area where there's an ocean nearby, because yes. none of the others, <laughs> they've all lived in Arizona or Montana or somewhere. Right. So... <laughs> How did you, what got you interested in marine ecology? You know, that's a question I often uh, have trouble answering because I'm not sure. I just uh, kind of entered my mind eventually over time that I was, it's an ecosystem that I'm fascinated with. Um, In terms of the animals, the marine mammals, it's very fascinating to me that they were once, you know, their ancestors were terrestrial and they adapted to marine life. And uh, as someone who was generally interested in conservation, terrestrial or marine, um, I kind of recognized that uh, marine conservation had a, a lot of problems that weren't being addressed, and I felt it wasn't getting as much attention, uh, perhaps, as terrestrial issues. Um, but I've always generally been interested in, in conservation and environmental issues. So so is it kind of a bit of a mission for you? I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I got that from reading your, your amazing blog. Which oh, thank you. fantastic. And... So it's, you you you've kind of you've got just a bit of a mission there. It's a bit of you know you've, you've oh it's yeah it's something I feel very strongly yeah. about and and that's the nice thing about being in this field. You have a lot of passionate people. Um, 
But one thing that has really shifted me from biology to more interdisciplinary conservation-focused research is just my interactions with the human communities in these countries where I've worked. Uh, you get to see firsthand the very complex context of poverty, and uh, you befriend these people, you understand their culture a bit, and uh, for me it's become as much about understanding and helping these communities as it has been about helping these animals, and uh, the two definitely um, need to go hand in hand. And uh, I think that kind of passion really is necessary because we do face a lot of uh, very challenging and disheartening problems. And uh, I think it helps one um, stay motivated enough to continue working in the field. <laughs> what's it, I mean, what's it like coming from a, uh, you know, a very rich you know, country mm -hmm. like, like the United States and have a privileged lifestyle and go to, you know, I suppose, these areas which are very poor Yeah. Uh, People don't have many resources. And then, I mean, how would you, how do you go in and approach people say, look, you need to stop killing the, these porpoises or these dolphins? <laughs> how, do, how, do you, how do you manage that? Because they just see some, you know, another rich Westerner. Yeah, you know, I know trying it's. to tell us how to live <laughs> our lives. You know, how do you overcome that? Yeah, it's something I'm very sensitive to. Um, and well, for one thing, it makes me very much appreciate my grad student stipend, <laughs> as measly as it seems at times. Um, but I very much enjoy traveling and working in developing countries, again, as much for the people as for the animals. And uh, I really enjoy learning about their cultures and respecting their, their social norms. And uh, I always try very hard to learn the language to at least become uh, somewhat conversant in it, even though I am not necessarily able to conduct all my interviews. And so I try to be just very sensitive. I work very closely with local collaborators, um, local universities, NGOs, I make sure all my field assistants are from the country, if not from those local communities. And uh, I don't come in and say, hi, guys, I know you're struggling to survive. Let's save the dolphins. Uh, I make it very clear that my research is as, as interested in the fishing practices and, and the environmental concerns of the fishers as it is um, with the dolphins. And uh, perhaps being a petite female has helped me out. I, I don't seem super intimidating, perhaps. Uh, but I've been just fantastically lucky with the people I work with and uh, in the, with the communities I've worked in. Well, it's cold down here in the water. It's cold down here in the sea.
CC Channel Swimmer and before that Tara Witty uh, talking about how conservation as much is as much about people as it is about the animals. Let's go down the rabbit hole with conservation. See who we get. And it's the conservationist himself, Sir Alan Mark. It's down forty three percent. So I mean it's declining fast, so that's one of the issues that we've been very concerned about. This promotion of tree planting, exotic forestry for carbon and uh, and uh, forestry would generally, and particularly for carbon, capture carbon sequestration is at, is at the, in many of these areas at a great cost to the water because uh, where water is important as a produce, as a product from these mountains, then we believe the value of water is probably greater than the value of carbon that's sequestered by putting a pine forest in these areas and it's still happening we've just been concerned with land care research planting 180 hectares of Douglas fir right up at high 800 metres on the Lamanors right within stone's throw of Te Papanui Conservation Park which is downwind they said they put it there for timber and particularly carbon we say that's a shocking place to plant them and even their consultants forestry consultants said the wilding threat is very high so there's a small patch, 190 hectares of Douglas fir getting established, uh, which is going to shed seed into a pristine area of tussock grassland where their consultants have told them that the wilding problems will be high. And, you know, that's, that really does concern me when um, and the government SOE, supposed to be a good neighbour, will uh, threaten a pristine area of conservation land by planting a patch of potentially serious threat uh, virtually upwind of it I missed a bit off his title of course it is Professor Sir Alan Mark talking about the complexity of environmental management quite often solving one problem makes another problem worse in this case he was talking about water impacts let's see who else is talking about water and we've got from Melbourne, Michael Daddo. Can we borrow this success of this workplace yeah. safety thing to start thinking about behaviour change and, and sustainability? Because I, I get frustrated when people are using sustainability and the, the, the sort of behaviour change they're working on is recycling or recycling in the waste bins at mm. work or making sure you climb up the stairs, which have to happen, but... Yeah aren't going to get us there on their own. Yep. So what do you think about this sort of 
using that approach on a the, wider uh, behaviour change? The thinking and the idea of forming an emotional connection, which is what underpins that thinking in, in many ways, is valid for sustainability. It absolutely is valid. I mean, you know, we... Um, sustainability is not always just about us right here and now. It's about a generational movement. It's, you know, my kids, are they going to be able to swim in a, in a nice clean water that I grew up sailing around chasing dolphins and things? Are they going to have that same pleasure? Are they going to be walking through, you know, um, appallingly as it was in Melbourne the other day and the Port Phillip Bay, there's rubbish on all the, the beaches and things, you know. I, there is an emotional connection to how we want our lives to be lived and the generations to grow up. And, you know, if you're in China and you don't see the sun properly for a period of time in Beijing because of the pollution, people don't want their kids brought up with that. You know, if you're an expat going there, won't people talk about that? Why would I do that? So I think the family, the emotional bond I have with the family and how they're going to live their lives, the well-being for my children, what I hope for my children and their success is very important in how we think about it. But it's not in just it. behaviour change that's about your children. It's a, your behaviour, how that's affecting that family in China. The, the smog in China is making stuff cheap stuff for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we we're doing the wrong things at times by you know perpetuating that demand for those products and things. But I think there is issues in how you address it. Then I guess the idea is that you can take an emotional reason for re-looking at the way you live your life in a sustainable manner. Now, how far you take that is going to be dependent on all sorts of things. Um, what we need to do is make things more economically viable so it's accessible. You know, governments have tried incentive programs. You know, in Australia, when we had the drought, we had... Um, and actually, the drought's a very good example in Australia. I think we became the best water conservers in the world at the end of the 10-year drought. Now, was that about our sustainable? Absolutely it was, you know. Um, we became good because we came understood that by, as a collective we could make a big difference. At the start of it, we thought, well, what's me turning the tap off going to do to a dam that's, you know, four times the size of Sydney Harbour sitting up in the Dandenongs or whatever? So it is, I think, really important that we understand that when we un- bring to understand the bigger social issues around it, are we going to have water enough in the future? Are we going to be able to do that, that we can all actually pull together? combination of regulations, combination of understanding exactly what we could do, information, how to shower with a bucket, how to do egg timers, how to take the save up your dirty laundry and do one wash, save up for the dishwasher, all those techniques, all sorts of different things that we needed to do about information and education on how to conserve water, plus the incentives, plus the costing and all that sort of stuff. makes a big difference. There's no one simple answer, but the emotional connection to it and that we're not going to have enough water is a powerful one. Is that relying on a lesser life, a threat of a lesser life, a, a fear? It's a threat. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's always. I think, you know, we we talk a lot about fear and hope in equal measure and how that uh, works. You know, there's the fear of in the homecomings out of dad not coming home, and then there's the joy and the hope of dad coming home. Um, so same with the water thing. There's the fear of not having it, and there's there's the hope that we will solve the problem and have water for the future so I think there's always that power, that point and I think we use very much understanding that shift in thinking that hope is a much more powerful motivator than fear at the end of the day that we think we can do better, we can hope we can do better and we can find ways to do that Do you always need to go through the loop of fear? Um, interesting question, I don't um, 
I think it works in certain spaces, you know, smoking, the fear of dying and things, and then losing your loved ones. Um, you know, f- smoking for a long time was about the personal journey. It's a great campaign Quit did in Victoria about, you know, the little girl who sits at the end of the bed and dad's missing out on time with his child, you know. It's a really strong pull, so there's... There's always fear, but you've got to give some sense of hope. If I stop smoking, I'm going to be better for it. If you, if you gave no hope at the end of the fear, why would I bother? If you were trying to do a, if you were engaged to do something on climate change, mm-hmm. how many pictures of polar bears standing on tiny bits of floating <laughs> ice would we see? Uh, I, I think we try and get away from that. I think you've got to take the, I think the problem is that's still too remote for a lot of people, you know. As much as a good shot of a polar bear is great, and you know the lone polar bear is wrong because one polar bear, so you know, maybe if there's a baby polar bear, you might get more emotionally engaged. So that's one step. But I think the real trick is how does it going to relate to me back at home and things? Because at the moment, I don't think there's enough. It's hard, you know. We're a self-interested thing. Our belief structures going that way. You know, I think it's important that we try and bring it back to that family. And so, what's really important is. Will my kids ever see a, have the opportunity to see a polar bear in the wild? Will my family ever have the water to drink? Will they have the clean beach to play on, swim in the ocean without worrying about the pollution, the air that they breathe? You could, the more you can bring it home, I think, and it's not always the answer, but a lot of it is in that space because that's where, where a lot of our motives are driven from. You know, I work to provide. I work for a better life for myself and my family. All our motion, motivations are around that aspect, that social aspect. So somehow if you can bring it into that space, then you're in a much richer area for people to listen to the message and take the message on board. But, you know, I think it's important. It's never going to be just about a clever ad or anything else. There's got to be more to it than that, and there's got to be a lot of more. Swimming, I wish I was swimming. I wish I was swimming. I wish I was. I wish, I wish, I wish I was swimming.
swimming it is swimming season so i am playing swimming songs before that we had michael daddo talking firstly about a health and safety promotion uh, which was very successful and how we can learn from that for climate change he was talking about fear and hope in equal measure and the importance of that emotional connection let's do a bit of a search for emotion. Liesl Linksoto. We'll use that. Is is it about positioning yourself on the outside ring? Oh, I'm I'm changing those bubbles if you like all the time. But it's uh, from servicing to activation to go back to my my cooking metaphor. If you just uh, if you just go on an all-inclusive holiday and are very lazy and you get your bracelets and then you're, you're basically your brain shrink so it becomes the size of a dried uh, basin um, yeah mm-hmm. and uh, you start complaining that you don't have enough bubbles in your welcome drink or whatever if you look at the activation if you put a backpack on and you go into some city and you don't know where to sleep and is it safe to walk down that road if you measure the brain it grows you know and it's activated and it will remember everything afterwards at an emotional level so that's that's one of the transition moving from service to activation um so for instance uh, instead of delivering food to our elderly folks then allowing them to be able to cook themselves as long as possible. Maybe you assist them in the cooking process because it's not actually getting fed. It's more the, the, the process of doing it. 
So that would be one transition. Um, I'm looking at it upside down, but as I remember, um, oh yeah, then we have all the people uh, asking, what are you doing? And, and that's a whole uh, uh, research part. Uh, and if people are being hacked by sensors and chips, then we actually have a, a lot of knowledge about what we actually do. So when you ask people how much they go to the theater, they should sell four more times tickets to the theater. So so we say something which is not always correct, but by monetizing people, you get a clear picture. So that's one of the transitions as well. And then we have this one, which you will like, from human doing to human being, which is very much a picture of not getting the most out of people, but getting the best out of people. Um, this whole notion from me to caring communities and that's where we look at loneliness and 40% live by themselves and when you ask people what has been meaningful to them it's these uh, long-lasting conflictual relationship where we see now that we have gone in northern Europe we have gone from 18% of, of young people saying they will not look after their old age parents when they grow old till now 25% are saying they're not going to do that because of the 68 generation the, both parents have been on the labor market they didn't pick up the grandchildren they moved somewhere else and now it's payback time basically so, so we have big issues of how will we create these caring communities in the future you have to design your own family structures you have to develop it somehow but it's not happening by itself you started by saying that that was Liesl Lingso, who is a futurist based in Copenhagen. She has developed a set of, or an approach, to looking at how rules are changing. For example, from service to activation. Let's see what we can find, Henry, under transition. Let's have Josephine Wangle. Gardening, which I'm sure you, you know about. Uh, but now this have expanded to different initiatives for uh, taking care of, of uh, public, public areas, turning these into commons uh, of, different, of different kinds, uh, having like pop-up cultural activities, pop-up cultural houses. Uh, and that sort of activities. And I think that for for these activities to take place, ICT is important because it provides a way to communicate. Uh, and I think that without without ICT, creating these networks uh, would be very, very difficult. I think one of the keys, and it's similar to the transition town, the transition movement, those sorts of activities, mm -hmm. is how to scale them but keep them local mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. how are we going to make that happen yeah i think well firstly i think that it's important to remember that not everyone wants scaling uh for for people working in a local project it's Often the local yeah. project and this the thing. So it's usually other actors who would like to see the the spreading out or scaling up or, or yeah, or certainly for those projects. Mm -hmm. 
it would spoil them if, mm-hmm. if it's not your community garden anymore mm-hmm. it's a franchised community garden yeah. that's not yeah. what you want but, exactly but we need them to be scaled mm. across the country across the globe yeah if we're going to get that change of systemic change of lifestyles that we we need exactly and and related to that i think that it's interesting to see that at least in stockholm and gothenburg and malmo which are two other big swedish cities i uh, the municipalities that have this planning monopoly have started to loosen up a bit uh concerning how to deal with with these initiatives i uh, and this this has happened quite quickly i uh, Like 10 years ago, it would have been almost impossible to get the permission to have a community garden uh, or to have one of those like pop-up cultural buildings uh, because the municipalities or the planners, policymakers, they didn't know how to handle this. Uh, they didn't know what they could do. They didn't know what they wanted to do. They didn't know the consequences. But then... You know, one one brave civil servant dared to say yes, and based on those experiences, more people could see that. Well, okay, this isn't dangerous. This is actually a good thing. So now the city of Stockholm are looking at how they can actively support support this uh, in different areas around the city. But it's it's very interesting to see that you know it's it's very much coming from from below. It's a grassroots, very local grassroots initiatives uh, that have the potential to to really change the sustainability of the city. But the city officials don't know how to handle it. So instead of supporting it, they have kind of worked against it uh, more or less actively. But now things are changing. Uh, which is really good to see.
and the machine swimming before that Josephine Wangle from KTH University in Stockholm talking about the way we communicate uh, future visions and how those operate at multiple scales let's do a bit of a search in the magic rabbit hole for scaling what seems to be working what we found and what um the Shell Foundation has come to us about a year ago and said is we have we Shell Foundation like a lot of development agencies like a lot of philanthropic trusts and like a lot of businesses and governments as well we've got pilots which seem to work but then those pilots never seem to go anywhere what can we be doing in order to we the, the initiator of those pilots to scale those up so that there is system level change. And over the last year, we've been looking at, well, how do you scale up impact? Coming out of that, we've got a, a sort of framework, and we're also, we have part funding, we're looking for next, uh, for match funding on setting up a scaling up living laboratory where somebody could bring to us a pilot, somebody could bring to us some sort of pioneering practice which is working on a small level but it's now a question of instead of it being three villages or eight, whatever it might be, so it becomes tens of thousands. So, and then the final, so I warned you that the <laughs> forum has many component parts. And the final part is, uh, well, sorry, there's so many parts that I missed off one element which has been implied so far, which is our futures capability. So we have a future centre which is part funded by the Singaporean Development Board. Uh, and it's part located in Singapore where we have people looking at what are the big trends in the world and also what are the things which are emerging, little weak signals of what the future might be that we can then use in our work in food, energy and business. And so then the final part is our network. So we have about 120, 130 companies and other organisations who are members and partners in one way or another and that gives us a set of relationships which we can firstly we gather insight about what the hell's going on in the world Mm -hmm. Uh, and secondly we can then build or it's almost like um, when you make a crystal you need a little starting point so often our collaborations come out of one of our partners 
saying to us, I have this problem which I can't solve alone. And then we can start to build using our other relationships, a coalition, a collaboration which tries to do something about that. So I realise that's lots of different stuff. Underneath it is an ethos of partnership. So our founders, Jonathan Porritt, Sarah Parkin and uh, Paul Andrews, and some of your listeners in Otago may know the Porritt name because Jonathan's father, I think, was the last, uh, what do they call it, not director general, but mm-hmm. one of the last governors of um, New Zealand. So people may live on Porritt Street. Um, the, the three founders had had a long time in campaigning and post Rio 92, they could see that campaigning, throwing mud was never, not really enough. People were beginning to say, okay, we get it, it's important. Now what, we should, now what should we do? And so Forum was founded on the notion of partnership and long-term working. Now, partnership is something which, so back in the mid-90s, that was a relatively novel idea, that you have a civil society entity that uh, was filled with campaigners former campaigners, and that you'd work in collaboration with these nasty businesses. Now partnership is Durga, it's everywhere that's doing it. So, um, But we would say that we've been doing it longer, uh, and many of the relationships we have are 10 years old plus. So newly of uh, MNS, these people, we've been working with them for a very long time. That was uh, David Bent from Forum for the Future. I was talking to him in London about partnerships for system change. Who else is talking about system change? Of course he is. Nandor Tanchos. Well, I suppose that's a question. I mean, you know, if, if you jump forward to the things that that I'm kind of grappling with in, in my own head is we, we, we face an ecological crisis. I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever if you look at what's happening with with waste with toxic waste with climate change with our waterways with loss of biodiversity with mass extinction of species on all fronts the the web of life is unraveling around us not unraveling we are destroying it wantonly around us with little apparent regard for what we're doing the impacts not just on the rest of life but on our own selves because we rely on this web of life to exist and that's the fundamental question, isn't it? Can can the system change? Can we transform this uh, industrial civilization into something that is um, homeotelic, to use Edward Goldsmith's term, that is in integrity with the rest of life, that is life-affirming and life-loving? I don't mean life as opposed to death, but kind of a you know the abundance and diversity and complexity of life. Do we have something that, that supports that? Or is the system incapable of that change? And, you know, is the solution to step out of it and create lifeboat communities, which people are doing, you know, and prepare for just the whole thing to fall over and be the weeds that come through when it's all destroyed? That's, that's I mean, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? That's the, how do we position ourselves in all of this? At the same time, I think, well, I don't know if the solutions are that different anyway, because... We know we face a great deal of uncertainty. We face pretty cataclysmic uncertainty. We know things are going to get pretty rough. We don't know in exactly what ways and exactly what times. We we know the trend, but we don't know the details. And, you know, 
whether we think we can change the system and adapt it or whether we think we can't, I think the solutions are kind of the same. We have to build resilience. We have to build a capacity for, to self-manage, to self-organise. We have to build knowledge across not just ourselves and our communities. We have to build community cohesion because ultimately whatever happens, that's the only way we're going to survive. Where do you position yourself on a radical through to systems continuum? Or is it a radical within the system? Or <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, it's interesting for me. I mean, I'm, I'm a district councillor. Yeah. I've been a member of parliament. So I'm embedded in the system um, and recognise that it's a slow-moving thing. You know, change is slow. There's a huge amount of inertia with what we're doing. Um, you know, but at the same time, I for me, the changes we need to make are, uh, absolutely radical in the sense of radical in the sense of getting to the roots of the problem we have to we have to fundamentally change our orientation to the world it's not just a question of tinkering with a few bylaws and rules and regulations we have to fundamentally change our orientation to the natural world and to the world around us to life um, so that's a radical change um, so we need to make that but um, you know, for myself, as I say, I'm, I'm active in these kind of institutions of formal power. And again, the same question. So what does that mean? Am I, am I, um, what am I trying to achieve in there? What am I trying to do? And again, it comes to the same thing. It's to me, it's using those positions to rebuild community resilience and self-reliance, local autonomy. Nandor Tanchos there. We could start an entire show just on the words that he said. Yeah. We, we could search for community resilience, for transformation, uncertainty, homeotelic. I'm pretty sure he's the only person that said that. Mm. Local autonomy and radical. Let's go for radical. Talking about radical within the system, this is Steve Clare in London. Um... At its very simplest, I think, you know, we've tended to think of sustainability as just meaning that something is, is viable and has a life going into the future. Um, it's tended to have overtones, and I suspect, slightly strangely, um, tended to have overtones around um, environmental and green issues. I think, curiously, that's less of a driver now. I did a, a survey of 10 of our members across the UK about three years ago, where, in discussion with others, I selected the 10 members who seemed to be doing the most radical green work, if you want. And I went out and talked to them. And it was interesting that for nine and a half out of 10... Um, environmental drivers were really of almost no significance whatsoever. Um, for example, I went to speak to uh, a member, a trust in, in the Orc Orkney Islands off the northern coast of Scotland, <coughs> where they'd set up a 750 kilowatt wind turbine. Unique in this country because there was not one single objection uh, to the turbine going up. Um, whereas some private sector ones on that island created a furore. 
But that wasn't about generating green energy. It was about generating a surplus of £100,000 a year that would be reinvested back into old people's services and uh, other things that benefited the community. It was a means to an end. It wasn't the green agenda that was driving it. And that's that's been, as I say, for nine and a half out of the ten organisations, one was about 50-50. I thought that was just so interesting. Um, There's a perception a lot of the the green movement in this country is the sort of middle class, well-educated cliché. And certainly a lot of the issues around environmentalism, you know, are, they have no, no resonance whatsoever amongst some of the most disadvantaged communities, inner city communities, black and minority ethnic communities, um, where, you know, often the challenge is, is quite literally, you know, am I going to get enough food to feed my children today? If you turn around that green issue into, uh, you know, we can help you cut your energy bills and we can help provide you with cheaper, healthier food, etc, etc then you can make uh, a difference That is Steve Clare in London talking about change. Let's finish with let's chase the change and go with Susan Crumdike One and, and, You know, it's not Tesla batteries Sorry, it's, it's not that <laughs> Remember that Greenpeace advert of the, um, the the old guy walking across a sort of a salt pan area with his little kid and, and you know, what did you do, Grandpa, type message? And yeah. I, I'd like to think that there's a positive side to that story, that some of the things that we're doing have a positive outcome. Of course, it's knowing which of them are. The, well, are. anybody who's trying to work on a positive outcome, of course, is part of, of the positive outcome. I'm just saying that the difference between a future where the experiment that we embarked on a couple hundred years ago plays itself out and it doesn't happen in a nice way. Um, that future is out there. The future where people keep hoping for green technology miracles and they don't come, but they keep hoping and they keep telling themselves that story as their civilization, you know, sort of winds itself down again, not in a very nice way. And in the meantime, they didn't change in a way that, uh, that made the, climate more livable um that future's out there there is a future out there where something profound changed and just like today i could ask 100 people what do they think that happened 100 years ago that has made a huge difference in their lives as workers and as as people who use products and people who use transport systems and probably not one of them would say safety engineering and yet that's basically it <laughs> The, the, the death rates in American factories a hundred years ago was daily what it is annually now. Do you want, you know, do you think safety engineering changed everything? It did. So did environmental engineering. We, we need another one of those changes. And, um, again, I, as far as activism goes, it's my own profession I need to change the mind of, but it helps a lot if society is, is so pushing that are, as well. If you are as most successful as you could possibly be, mm-hmm. no one will recognize it. Exactly. That's a good thing. That it would be a good thing. If, if all of the engineered systems transitioned to, you know, 5% of the carbon emissions we have now in the next 20 years, if that was an engineered transition engineering solution or transition engineering changes, 
most people would never know. Because that's the job of engineers, to make stuff work. And that is Susan Crumdike, who is a professor, I think, of engineering at Canterbury University. I wonder who we know that's going to Canterbury University Engineering. I did not know if she was there, but now I do. You need to seek her out. I will. We have started with Renew, and you were right. It went to renewable energy, not renewing as in the new year. And we had Philippa Brakes, Tara Whitty, Sir Alan Mark, Michael Daddo, Liesl Lingso, Josephine Wangle, David Bent, Nandor Chanchos, Steve Clark, and Susan Crumdike. You can find all of those people on sustainablelands.org. This is Frightened Rabbit. Swim until you can't see land. You've been listening to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on radio. I'm Samuel Mann, and he's Henry Mann. We hope you enjoyed the show.
At Otago Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.